It's Wednesday, the 15th of January, and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, is the United States ready for a Madam President? So in case my Republican colleagues are suffering from short-term memory loss, let me spell this out again loud and clear. We will not allow you to turn back the clock on women's health and women's rights. As a rift erupts between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, we'll look at the challenges facing female leaders. Plus, what's your favorite use of an architect in pop music? Don't worry, our editor Andrew Tuck will give you a moment to jot down your shortlist. I'm Ben Ryland in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. Six presidential candidates from the U.S. Democratic Party took to the debate stage in the state of Iowa last night. But despite this being the final debate before the all-important caucuses, the political dialogue leading up to last night's event sounded a lot like it did four years ago. The issue of sexism was forced back on the agenda this week when reports suggested that Bernie Sanders had privately said that he thought a woman couldn't win the presidential election. Sanders denies that report but it has revived that old question. Is the United States ready to elect a woman as its president? Yasmin Abdel-Majid is a writer and broadcaster. Yasmin, you've written and coached people on the topic of leadership and diversity. Who were the women that you admired when you were growing up? I was quite lucky, and it may sound a bit cliche, but I had a mum. She was involved leading lots of community programs, lots of community organizations. And so I think I was quite lucky that I had a female role model from the from the get-go. What do you think the qualities were about your mother or any other leaders you knew growing up that suggested to you that this person is a leader? There was there were probably a few things. I think the first was that it was somebody who would take initiative. So I went to a community primary school. Um, so there's only a few hundred of us. We were all migrants. It was a Muslim school. So we were all first generation, second generation migrants. So the leaders were the people that put their hand up and said, you know what, I'm going to do it. I, I see that there's a thing here that needs to be done and I'm going to go ahead and make it happen. And then also the ones that were successful were the ones that were able to bring people together behind a particular goal or a vision. On the road to leadership then, uh, whether it is business or politics or even in the community, uh, women face more obstacles than men. We know this and they're different obstacles as well. Uh, but even when a woman manages to overcome those obstacles, Do you think they're still destined to be judged by an entirely different criteria by their peers or by voters in the the case of politics? I mean, essentially, women are fighting a different battle. Does that mean that they always will be seen differently? Yeah. And this is one of the challenges when it comes to having a conversation around women in leadership or, or sort of gender equality or gender equity at board levels and so on. Part of the challenge is that the society we live in has been designed by and for men. The ideas in our mind, the sort of the biases and the social norms for what we think looks like a typical leader, whether it's the way that you sound or the way that you walk or the way that you engage with the people around you or the way that you deliver instructions or requests or demands or all of those things are very limited to a particular idea of what a particular type of male leader looks like. And so women then tend to be judged by those same standards. However, those standards were never designed for women. When you read about the comments that Bernie Sanders reportedly made about a woman not being able to win a presidential election in the US, uh, comments that he denies making, what was your reaction to that? (sighs) I mean, 
I've heard that kind of thing before. I, I trained as a mechanical engineer and I, and I worked as an engineer for a number of years on oil rigs and I've also sort of been, uh, I work a lot with corporates now, uh, having conversations with them around how to lead inclusively and design inclusive organisations. And when you really get down to it, quite a few people have this deep-rooted bias. I also think part of it, there is an aspect of me thinking, well, is this a generational thing? Because Bernie Sanders is in his 70s and has grown up in a world where women have, like the position of women in the workplace and the position of women in politics has changed quite a lot in his lifetime. And so there's a lot of unlearning that he has to do in order to sort of be like, yeah, okay, you know, I, I... I see the world in a way that's completely gender neutral or that or that's completely gender inclusive. A person's gender has no impact on their ability to lead. Is there a possibility that Bernie Sanders was actually touching upon a tough truth in the electorate that even if women would make brilliant leaders, the reality of the electorate is that right now, in the age of Donald Trump, people aren't going to vote for a female president. Is that a legitimate point to make? It's such a tricky thing with politics, right? Because there's the question of where the electorate is now versus the question of where you can lead the electorate to be or where you can show the electorate that they could be. And I think this is part of the challenge. It may be the case that lots of people, the majority of people, have a deep-rooted bias against women leading and therefore will not currently vote for a female. However, people said the same thing about a black president for example, until it was possible, until it happened. And I think time and time and time again, it's not possible until it happens. And so maybe right now there is evidence to show that there is deep-rooted bias against women and women in leadership. That is a very real thing. However, I don't think that is the same as saying people won't vote for a woman because, A, they did. They voted for Hillary Clinton. But B, I think there is something about the way we talk to the electorate, the way we talk to voters, rather than talking to them where they are, talking to them and presenting a hope, a dream, a vision that they can then buy into that allows them to change and to grow with you. And that, I think, is very exciting. Well, Yasmin, you and I both come from an Australian background. We've only had one female prime minister for a long time, Julia Gillard, tried not to let sexism be an issue during her time in the top job, but then something changed, resulting in this moment in the Australian Parliament. I say to the Leader of the Opposition, I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the Government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. Not now, not ever. The Leader of the Opposition says that people who hold sexist views and who are misogynists are not appropriate for high office. Well, I hope the Leader of the Opposition has got a piece of paper and he is writing out his resignation. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. That's what he needs. Let's go I remember that misogyny speech because I was actually at home studying for exams and I was procrastinating and switched the television on and saw that speech live. And I remember thinking, is she for real? Because at the time, we didn't talk about that at all in the public space. And I I was studying engineering. I was one of seven girls and 300 guys. I didn't talk about my difference at all. And so it kind of blew my mind and I didn't really know how to deal with it. And what was super interesting was the difference that the conversation in Australia was compared to the conversation overseas. The speech 
went incredibly viral in an incredibly positive way internationally. And in Australia, she got absolutely slammed for it. So I think a couple of things. I think one is that when you start to talk about your difference and you are a minority in a majority group that doesn't necessarily want you to be there, it will always be cause for trouble, right? However, when I was younger, I used to think the less trouble I cause, the better. But now I think what is quite obvious is that you can never make a change without naming the reason that a change needs to happen. We can never really change the way that we think about gender in leadership if we don't talk about gender in leadership, because silence is what protects the status quo. And that, I think, is what's really exciting about this younger generation as well, because they do talk about this. My politics now and the way that I go through the world is to say the only way that we can change things is if we name our differences because they exist whether we like it or not. In 2016, Donald Trump won the presidential election by eight percentage points among voters 45 and older. But among people aged 18 to 44, he lost to Hillary Clinton by 14 points, suggesting that young people may have rather different views on the issue of gender than older people. According to a Gallup poll held in May 2019, 94% of Americans say they would vote for a woman for president. If you were to write the story of architecture, what kind of story would it be? A gothic romance, perhaps? A brutalist thriller? Well, no. According to Monocle's editor, Andrew Tuck, it'd most surely be a musical. So long, Frank Lloyd Wright. Simon and Garfunkel are surely, even today, the most famous for doing it, creating a song where a celebrated architect gets bigged up in the lyrics. Yes, we know that David Bowie sang about a few architects too. Here he is, and I quote, stomping along on this big Philip Johnson. This delay just wasting my time Looking across at Richard Rogers Scheming dreams to blow their minds. But so long Frank Lloyd Wright by Simon and Garfunkel still takes the award for the best use of an architect in a song, even if it's apparently more about Paul Simon hinting at the impending break with Art Garfunkel who had trained as an architect, rather than the work of the Prairie School's leading figure. It really wouldn't make much sense otherwise. Here are the lyrics. I'll remember Frank Lloyd Wright All of the nights we'd harmonise till dawn until now, this has been the star turn at many an architect's hoedown or sing-along. Oh yes, they love a sing-along, those architects. But now, a new song has arrived to shake things up. The British one-woman pop-hit factory, Dua Lipa, has a new track called Future Nostalgia. And get this for retro but on-the-money lyrics. You want a timeless song? I want to change the game. Like modern architecture, John Lautner coming your way. Yes, John freaking Lautner. Just in case you're less excited than us, 
Lautner was a prolific architect who mostly practised in California and built several celebrated atomic age houses and helped create the futuristic Googie style. His work gains fans every year and one of them seems to be Dua Lipa. It's a song that is already a shoo-in for every architect's ball in 2020. But we're hoping she'll also do the honours for Mies van der Rohe, find a rhyme for Zaha Hadid and perhaps give a shout-out to David Chipperfield too. Our editor Andrew Tuck there, who definitely knows how to hold a tune. Elsewhere on today's agenda... Mozambique's president, Felipe Niusi, is sworn in today for a second term and a final term in office after his governing front of the liberation of Mozambique secured a landslide victory in elections on the 15th of October. Maintaining peace will be his number one priority as the East African nation faces a series of security challenges. Shanghai has severed diplomatic ties with its sister city, Prague, following a decision by the Czech capital's bigwigs to sign a separate twinning agreement with Taiwan's capital, Taipei. The decision comes shortly after Taiwanese elections that have emboldened the independence movement there and angered Chinese leaders who see the self-governed island as their territory. And the Swiss city of Baden has been awarded this year's Walker Prize. The award is given annually by the Swiss Heritage Society to cities that have successfully raised the quality of urban life. Baden's administration is credited with innovative solutions that turned one of the country's most traffic-congested centres into a livable city of public spaces, parks and car-free zones. Read more about today's stories by subscribing to our daily email bulletin at our website. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Thursday. Thursday.